Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Miriam Manzavan, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hey, Dan. Hey, Miriam. It's really exciting today to be recording at the podcast garage. In fact, when I got here, I immediately Instagrammed that sucker. So there's no need to put up vaguely threatening signs in the halls or on the doors at CJP telling people not to stomp or yell, and that's a huge relief to me. That is a big relief. So our guest today is Nathan Englander, the author of Dinner at the Center of the Earth, What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank, For the Relief of Unbearable Urges, and The Ministry of Special Cases. He was the 2012 recipient of the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award and a finalist for the 2013 Pulitzer Prize. Englander was selected as one of the 20 writers for the 21st century by The New Yorker, received a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Penn Malamud Award, the Bard Fiction Prize, and the Sue Kaufman Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He's been a fellow at the Dorothy and Lewis B. Cullman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library and at the American Academy of Berlin. He is the Distinguished Writer-in-Residence at New York University. His new novel, Kaddish.com, is out in late March. Dan and I were fortunate enough to be able to read it ahead of its release. Kaddish.com tells the story of Larry, the secular son in a family of Orthodox Brooklyn Jews. When his father dies, it's his responsibility to recite the Kaddish, a prayer of praise for God that mourners must utter every day for 11 months, and we'll find out why it's not 12 later. To the horror and dismay of his sister, Larry refuses, which Jewish tradition suggests could imperil the fate of his father's soul. To appease her, Larry hires a stranger through a website called Kaddish.com to recite the prayer and shepherd his father's soul safely to rest. Later, inspired by the young man who he paid to say Kaddish, Larry becomes religious again, goes by the name Shuli, and becomes a happily married teacher of Hebrew studies for 20 years before he decides to track down the young man to whom he owes so much. The book asks a question central to the Jewish faith. What is our obligation to our fellow Jews, to the living, and to the dead? Nathan joins us on the phone now to give a brief reading of his book and answer some of our questions. Kaddish.com. Mirrors covered in front door jar, collar torn and sporting a shadow of beard. Larry leans against the granite top of his sister's fancy kitchen island. He says, everyone's staring at me, all of your friends. That's what people do, Dina tells him. They come, they say kind things, they feel uncomfortable, and they stare. It's only hours after the funeral, and honestly, Larry hates himself for bringing it up. He really thought nothing could add to the despair of his father's loss, but this This quiet, muttering stream of well-wishers has made it for Larry all the worse. What he's taking issue with is the look that he's getting. It's not the usual pain nod one naturally offers. Larry's convinced there's a bite to it, condemning. He doesn't know how he'll survive a week trapped in his sister's home, in his sister's community, when every time one of the visitors glances over, Larry feels himself appraised. And so he keeps raising his hand to the top of his head, checking for the yarmulke, sitting there like a hubcap for all its emotional weight. Its absence at his own father's shiva would be the same as standing naked before them. Sneaked off into the kitchen with his sister, their first moment alone, Larry unloads his complaints in a hiss. Tell them, he says, to stop looking my way. At a condolence call, you want them not to look at the... Dina pauses. What are we, the condoled, the aggrieved? We are the grievances. The mourners, she says. You want them not to show that they care. 
I want them not to judge me because I left their stupid world. Dina laughs, her first since they put their father into the ground. This is so like you, his sister tells him. To make it negative, to complicate what can't be any more simple. This bitterness in the face of what is pure niceness is on you. Nathan, welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe. Thanks for having me. So Nathan, I have a copy of the New American Haggadah, and I love what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank and the Ministry of Special Cases. So I guess I've been a follower of your work for 15 years now, and I really appreciated the opportunity to read uh, Kaddish.com pre-release. And you know, when I read your writing, whether it's a short story, novel, or a new translation of an ancient story, I hear the voice of someone who embraces the idea of wrestling with big Jewish questions, whether it's the meaning of a modern state in Israel or the story of Exodus or our response to the Holocaust or anti-Semitism, maybe the toll of occupation. And in Kaddish.com, you're dealing with, I guess, what you would call the weight of Jewish custom and Jewish tradition. And I wonder what drives you to delve into this kind of messy line of inquiry. Um, I guess because it's, my line of inquiry you know it's uh it's so nice and clean when you state it like that um i mean for me i just i'm just telling stories and you know maybe personally i wrestle with the notion of what those stories are in many ways but uh but yeah this is my universe this is this is where my brain ticks i mean i guess these are these are the questions that i am personally asking and i think you're often, you know, so many, I mean, just almost universally, you end up being a writer because you're a reader because you've, you know, found answers in books or at least people who were wrestling with the questions that you needed some help with. So for me, yes, this is where I work it all out. And again, it's not about catharsis. It's not some psychological experiment. It really just always boils down to story for me and, yeah, it's teasable, and one can step back and say, wow, I am surely obsessed with these gigantical Jewish questions, but not in a Jewish way, I guess. It's like, as I said, it is my complete universe. It's just the world in which I live. And when I, you know, when I'm, when I'm wanting to explore injustice or black and white or the nature of contracts, so maybe someone else, you know, I don't know what, you know, takes it to a court in Alabama and I take it to, you know, the West Bank. As we just heard um, from the reading you did, the book opens with a shiva, the traditional seven-day Jewish morning week where the community visits a family that suffered a loss, bringing food, comfort, and companionship. You really bring to life the emotional toll and confusion of losing a parent, something about which I have firsthand knowledge myself. What Sorry. was writing? Oh, thank you. What was writing such a defining Jewish experience like for you? Is is a, is a joy an okay answer when writing about <laughs> death? Yes. I really had a fun time writing this book, and I also have to put a big asterisk there because I feel like you know my wife's in the other room. She'll run in and be like, "He drove me crazy. He went mad at the end. He's he's not a well person." You know, like. Yes, polishing, rewriting, you know, we'll get my editor on the phone and my agent, you know, like parts of the process are extraordinarily intense for me. But I have to say, like this book, it really came to me like in a dream. Yeah. I, I just I, I've, I've not had that experience. I mean, there's usually this 
uh, really alters my average. You know, just by a week, I'm going to end up making it to, you know, a book every four years for the last 20 years. But uh, it was it was looking like once a decade there for a while. But uh, yeah, I just finished Dinner at the Center of the Earth, my novel about the, you know, Gaza conflict about mm-hmm. Israel and Palestine. And and just, you know, the day after I handed in, this one was just waiting. And I, you know, I, I, I drafted it in a fever in like 12 weeks. But about the morning part of it, it's, you know, my father, my own father passed away a decade ago. Oh, and I think, sorry. you know, round, yeah. thank you, round numbers, you know, like I think maybe, you know, or distance from me as a writer, like I need time to reflect. And I think just, you know, with me also, by the way, there's all these high minded things. And we're talking about a, a, a somber, serious subject and a, you know, gigantical subject. But there's, there's sort of always like a weird primal joke to things for me like in my first book there's a story called the wig which is about you know this like sort of Hasidish woman who's a wig maker who like is obsessed with getting this man's hair that she sees in the city has beautiful <laughs> long hair you know and she's you know this this you know is a thing that drives her but the point is that just really started from me being like long-haired mildly stoned me showing mm-hmm. up at my sister's you know shabbat dinners and her friends being like i could make a really nice wig out of your hair you know what i'm saying like that's i can i have all the things that drive that story and then i have the really clear things like oh yeah that just stuck in my head because it's funny and i think in a weird way i'm so i'm such a secular person i'm really not religious but i think everyone just is teasing me all the time for like having this deeply religious soul you know mm-hmm. you me- i mean that was like almost vaudevillian you mentioned the haggadah you know Jonathan Fower used to tease me on stage. He'd have me, you know, like I basically get introduced as an atheist sort of thing. And then he'd have me read from my translation. And then he'd say, like, have you ever seen a more religious man in your life? And everybody would laugh. You know, like I'd read my heart out. It's so passionate to me. And I really think, you know, that's it. Like my wife is like, you know, terrified she's going to walk through the door one day and I'm just going to have like, you know, a Woody Allen movie, like a beard to the floor and long payas and being a Beckish and being like, we're Hasidic now. <laughs> I, I changed my mind. And I and then I thought about those changes, which is, you know, there's certain things we just are comfortable with, journeys we support people on or things that are clear. And you sort of get to switch once in life. You know what I'm saying? Like I was a raised right. religious and now I'm a secular adult. And then it's supposed to end there. But I'm like, well, if you switch one way, how crazy is it that I would just be like, oh, actually, upon reflection, you know, that really is the life for me. So I, I really think it was like cooking in my head about flipping back. And also you've been nice about mentioning, you know, previous books. I, I also, you know, that's the point when we talk about the Jewish elements of the stories, I, I hear what you're saying. That's all in there. But if we really look at the books, it's a lot about doublings or things being the opposite of what they seem or things taking, you know, radical flips, Mm -hmm. you know, this is, that's, that's the part of the writing that I'm aware of, like, oh, you're really obsessed with doublings, with things flipping. And I think just that's what drive this book, which is Larry, who I, you know, you meet at the beginning, who's left, like he just, at some point, you know, recognizes the error of his ways and flips back and, you know, and, and back to the Kaddish.com of the title, he's, you know, he's the one who's responsible for saying the Kaddish, he's not religious, He'd hired a service. There's this whole idea of shaliach mitzvah and the idea of proxies and people doing a mitzvah for you so that someone else can say Kaddish on your behalf and you're actually covered. We can go into all that stuff, but simply the whole thing that drives the book 
is, you know, really in like a biblical birthright manner is Larry, who's now calling himself Shuli. He recognizes he sort of lost his father's soul. He's given away his right to it. And, and he is obsessed. He is you know, on the hunt to get it back. Yeah, so it's very interesting you talk about that observant part of your history because at the center of the story is this Orthodox family, and it seems like there is a lot of love, perhaps criticism, but loving criticism of Orthodox Judaism in this book. Um, I personally was uh, a Balchuva, and now I'm an atheist, so I kind of feel, wow. I feel that. There, I feel oh, that. you're my, you're yeah. my fellow <laughs> flipper. Yeah. But you never know. You never know what's going to happen in the future. But I know I certainly sometimes feel defensive of the Orthodox community or traditions because I have that background, um, although Dan and I differ on this. So I'm wondering if you ever feel kind of defensive on behalf of the Orthodox or people who, who stick to these traditions. Oh, yeah, I uh, I can still picture this woman in an event who was, you know, the Israel Palestine book, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, here I am going on the road again, like it's, it's hard enough talking about literature, you know, I'm like very thankful to get to do it. But man, that's a loaded subject to take on the road. <laughs> but I remember this woman asking question, I was like, whichever side you take, I'm going to get, I'm going to take the opposite side. Like, let me tell you in advance, like, that's how I feel. You know, I'm so like, radically lefty on the one hand and then I'll be like well that's not a fair portrayal you know like (laughs) yeah that's how I feel about you know orthodoxy which is you know I am super you know I I, yes my political positions are really left but you know like also uh, yes we are tolerant of you know if I'm going to be tolerant on so many fronts it's really weird to choose you know one thing to you know like you know to to pick something to be intolerant about. But um, I don't think that really answers your question. Maybe to say, yes, I'm, def- uh, yeah, I am, uh, yeah, defensive is the, I'm trying to decide who's attacking in the question. <laughs> but well, yes, I'm protective of that world is the point. That's yes, the world protective, I grew up in. protective. Uh, yes, I, that is my family's world. <laughs> I am very protective of that, of that world. And, you know, I can be plenty critical of a lot of things, but uh, yes, uh protective I am gotcha. how's that <laughs> I guess it like I hear it as a two-part question because it's like the personal me you know how I respond you know like that's the point how am I when I'm with my family when I how am I inside that world how am I when I'm outside that world how am I when I'm outside that world and someone's critical of that world but really we're doing like a we're talking about I'm here as writer person today mm-hmm so I think it's I, I really think about my own representations and I really ponder that stuff a lot. I've really like thought about that, like what are one's responsibilities when representing a world and how that gets read and whose hands things end up in, which is, you know, sort of cute and charming when people literally aren't taking responsibility for the uh, like truly vile things right. that they say that clearly spark actual violence in this world. Yeah. There used to be something called like empathy and, you know, ethical behavior What's and moral that? responsibility. It was it was part of uh, what used to like, you know, when societies do hold together, uh, it was part of the conversation. That was a very 2011 of you. So right, wanna... right. <laughs> I want to uh, talk about Larry a little bit, and I I flip back and forth on Larry. On the one hand, I say, what is wrong with you, Larry? And on the other hand, I say, Larry, this is really onerous. How are you going to handle this? Um, Why can't Larry live up to this obligation? Because it's an extraordinarily huge obligation. I mean, this is the point about, like, you know, I, I hate that notion of, 
tolerance. Everyone, like when people talk about tolerance, I'm always like, I don't want to be tolerated. Like, how about mutual respect? You know, like some things it's trying to fit things together. If we're going to function, I mean, what, what do novels do? Like it's the individual as the universal, like, you know, there's the smaller family, the family that's community, the family of nation, like the family of humanity, you know, like it all builds out. Like how does, is Larry supposed to make this jibe? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like his father was a religious man, you know, and his sister is religious and, up to a point modern, which is, you know, it's a man's responsibility to say Kata. She doesn't believe a woman can do it. Like it's on this brother. And the responsibility is to say this prayer. You have to go to a minion like that is you have to pray with a group three times a day, you know, for 11 months, you have to say the prayer eight times a day and not miss once. Like people who take this on, it's not like they skip a day, not because they're sick or tired or on vacation. Like you cannot miss once. That is just it is simply as important as it is to everybody. Like, what's Larry supposed to do? He doesn't believe. And it's just an impossible ask. And that's, you know, what pressurizes a story. And and I think when you, when you talk about empathy, like, or connecting or protective, uh, you know, nature of it, like, that's the thing for me to be able to write a book like this is understanding, like, really understanding the side of the family of how important that is. Like, you know, I'm saying that's in this conversation, which is who cares if I skip or who's going to know? You could just say, I'll do it. But it really matters to me. Like when you talk about getting along with a religious family, like if I'm in my sister's kitchen and no one's looking and I accidentally like trafe up a knife, I don't put it back in the drawer. It's not my kitchen. Right. So with Larry, you know, you mentioned that there are really no shortcuts to this requirement, yet there's a guy in Jerusalem ultra-Orthodox man who's figured out a way to relieve someone like Larry. He's he's read his customer base. He, he can relieve someone like Larry of this, of his problem with his conscience and somehow in some way fulfill the obligation. Uh, to me, this is a satire of the modern world where you can just kind of do everything online, avoid human interaction, and and just sort of sit behind your computer screen and, and volley whatever crap you want at people. What what are you saying in this book about that modern human proclivity to do this? Oh, thanks for asking that. Yeah, I guess I really started to think about that. Like, you know, as soon as there was an Internet, it was used for this sort of, well, it was probably, uh, we know what it mostly got used yes, for. But, um, but like, the you know, as soon as there were like, you know, Internet cameras, there was like a Kotel cam put up. Like, you can't get to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. You can watch it, you know, give a Google, Kotel cam. You can watch it 24 hours a day. You know, like, I thought of how everything, yeah, did sort of get farmed out to the Internet, our social lives, our loves, lives, all this stuff. And I was thinking, like, oh, why wouldn't, you know, this kind of religious stuff you know, why wouldn't this service be there? And and back to the basis of the service of, of ha- having a proxy, that is a very old Jewish idea from like people who know about like selling their chametz, they're like mm-hmm. leavened, you know, selling their bread, you know, on Passover to somebody else like that's a proxy. And also, if you know this, like, Jewish thing, if like someone's going on a plane to Israel, you might give them like $18 to give to charity when they get yes. there. You're saying you're a shaliach mitzvah. I'm giving you charity that you need to give when you get there. And that literally will protect your flight because you are not just flying for yourself anymore. You are on a holy mission. Like, so the idea of a proxy is a very ancient, you know, old Jewish idea. So I, and also this idea of someone saying, God, there's plenty of families like I can't have made up the situation, you know, or just a family that's super traditional that just doesn't have 
a male person to say that if you believe in that, you know, gendered element of the law, like you have to be able to have someone else to say the Kaddish to protect this soul. So that also existed. So I thought there must be a site online. And back to everything else I've written, I wrote a story, you know, called Reb Kringle about a Hasidic guy who can't, you know, my first book for the Relief of Unbearable Urges, which is 20 years ago. But this guy can't afford to pay for his synagogue and he's got the big belly and the white beard and he basically works as he works as santa claus and i like when i think of something like that you know i i basically it's a joke and i was like i want to treat it seriously and that's what made it a hard story to write how do you write a serious story about what is a punchline that's an idea that often gets in my head you know like i want a serious exploration of this guy's predicament but nonetheless like in the in, intervening 20 years I've met like every Jewish Santa Claus in this country, I'm pretty sure. Like, you think there's going to be none, and there's been so many. Like, it just someone just sent me a video online, you know, last year, like, where, like, another, you know, I was like, wow, that is a really Jewish Santa Claus. Anyway, but the point is, you know, within minutes of me, you know, the book's not even out yet, but, you know, I let my mom read it, and within, you know, I don't know what, like, a month of her reading the draft, she's like tearing things out of the back of Jewish Week and being like, oh, there's this service, there's that service. So I, I do already think that the service exists, but not the site Kaddish.com, which I wish they would sell me. We have we got Kaddish.com.com, which is kind of funnier. <laughs> you know, you you talked about um, uh, how these, these very serious issues can strike you as, as funny. And when I read the book, you think it's going to be about a, a very heavy theme when you begin reading it. It's going to be about death and mourning and Jewish obligation. But at the same time, the book is very funny and it moves very quickly, almost like a thriller. And and it's also, you know, very lighthearted at times. And how did you strike that balance? Oh, you're uh, again, this is a real pleasure on my end. But uh, thanks for noticing that. But what I love about writing is it's always each book feels like the first book to me. Like, I, I really feel like this is the book I've been waiting to write, you know, like now I'm started. This is the one, you know, like com. I'm a writer now, you know, with my gray hair, but like, really, I'm ready to start. And it's like this weird, like what keeps me excited and interested and just like hungry is this, you know, these different concerns and obsessions that take over. So like I, you know, I wanted to write a novel about Israel, Palestine, but everyone comes to that fully firm and you know anyone who's going to read the last book i knew would be coming to it with like a fierce you know personal position immobile and everybody thinks they're center or to one side or the other nobody thinks they're like a fanatic you know and so like build that book i was like oh nobody wants my lecture nobody wants you know 500 pages on my brokenhearted you know peace process diary like it, it just it was a million years of thinking till I was like, oh, what if I write like a literary magic realist history that's also a political thriller? You know, like what if it's a page turner? What if it's just like masked in a way as a political thriller? And that I read so snobbily in my little, you know, bubble. And I was like, oh, I, I've got to, you know, learn how this form works. Point is, I just started reading more broadly and I read all these thrillers to sort of think about how to build that book. I got interested in a certain kind of pacing and a certain kind of, you know, timing for that last book. And that stayed in my head. Really, I thought while I was building, I mean, the Dinner at the Center of the Earth has like seven timelines. And, you know, as I said, everybody is somebody else and all, you know, and the magic realist part, it's the structure of that book to build it was so insane. And I thought of how, like, how did I get here? Like, I'm so far from where I started 
building that last book. And I thought, you know what? I want to take all of this and go back to the beginning. Like, I love the sacred and profane. Mm -hmm. I love this religious secular line. These questions still obsess me. I'm a dad now. I have to think, you know, today's Purim. It's like, you know, when we're taping this, I'm like, you know, are we doing anything? Are we not doing anything? You know, like my kids are going to be big enough that I'm going to have to like have these answers really soon, like yesterday. You we know? have a drink card so, at work, so you could you could try that. Just roll do. a drink card around the house. That's awesome. That's perfect. <laughs> it's pretty fun. It's but, actually um, one of the best days of the year. That's really funny. But um, and great for children. That's yeah, a, totally appropriate. Um, if you want them to totally go to sleep. Appropriate. Oh, yeah. So it's just that notion where I was like, I'm going to marry these two concepts or these two things. So, yes, thank you for saying that. Like, I wanted this book literally like it's very strange people you spend years on these things and i know somebody just said to me don't people usually get upset at the concept of somebody reading it in one sitting but i was like i built this book i really you know the the questions in it are so gigantical to me about like you know faith in the modern world and god and the internet and you know all these giant things but i really wanted people to like sit down and just devour it like a like a thriller and laugh the whole way and then maybe cry at the end but literally that's when i was building it i was thinking laugh 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 cry that was like my operative driving thing for this book and then yes i just wanted that page turning thing and then to pause and say you know like in the middle to just think about this notion of like what we have built with the internet like you know to have these giant ideas woven into what is a funny book because i really am obsessed we've kind of built you know those questions i asked which are you know the kind of things where you get thrown out of you know you know bible class or talmud and i get sent to the library or sent to disappear or you know just not get caught by the head of the yeshiva but a lot of them are about like belief and notions of belief and it's really what became clear to me like either you know as an impetus for this book or during the construction of it was the sort of omniscient god that was a big ask when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. like that a God could know what all of us have done, what we're doing, what we're going to do. Like we've, we've based, the internet is pretty new still. And we've basically built that, you know, and saying it's not the whole planet. Not everybody is holding a cell phone and not, you know, every city is on the grid yet, but a good hunk of this planet, it's, we, we've literally built a God, but for like consumer purposes, but you know, that notion, like, it really does know, like the computer knows, like everything you've done, it knows where you are right now. And it's really predictive to the point that, you know, you know, my wife asked me for something and I opened my Instagram and there's an ad for it already in the feed. Oh, they're listening. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're listening to us. Yeah, like that's yeah. crazy. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And I don't mean, you know, like something like, oh, she says food and then I open my phone and there's food. It's more like, you know my daughter likes the green tortellini. Like you're going to the supermarket and I open it and there's an ad for that, like branded, you know? And that to me is really about like God and free will. Like you don't have to buy it, but it is predictive. <laughs> it knows what you're likely to do ahead of time. Well, that's actually, speaking of wives, I want to talk about my favorite character who is Miri, the very learned wife. Um, I want to talk about her, not because she's the same, has the same name as me, but because she is a full-time student of Torah in a world where it's often the man who has that role. So I would love to hear about the inspiration for Mary as a character. Oh, it's, you know what, like that's when the book turned around for me. Like that's when it was, when it took its true form was when Mary became Mary. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's truly the main character. We're on his journey with him, but like, 
when I understood their marriage, when I understood their relationship, when that took its form, it really got clear to me because I was like, he's, he's back to that world, but he's, you know, lived, you know, I'm talking from Clinton Hill. Like I have him living in, I have him living in Clinton Hill during his secular years. Like he finds a partner, like they're really a good match for each other. And I literally can tell you the moment, like when I thought of the line of like, when I thought of their setup, which is they decided it's really important for them as a couple that one of them be learning Torah full time, that that's usually important. And they decided that she was smarter. So and that I she, love that. I love that. Yeah, like, well, you know, that's an easy draw for my own marriage. But nonetheless, <laughs> like, you know, it's just, you know, like to me, when it was clear as a couple, like that Miri was, you know, the more like she was the one. It's like Zitzfleisch, this old like Yiddish German thing, like the ability to sit like she was the one more built to learn full time than him. Like she was the one who should be doing that. And she has the wisdom that goes along with it, that she has that personality. It just, it just shaped the book for me, like how he would, you know, that when, when his nightly thoughts turned into, there was really a moment where what were a draft where they were like his, I can't sleep insomniac thoughts. And they became instead their conversations as a couple. And that's just really when I understood their home which is critical because that's what this book is about. It's about home because that's that weird notion. If you are a certain kind of Jewish, like, you know, I'm not religious anymore, as I've said 500 times, but like I travel the world in a Jewish bubble. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, yeah. I was just in Moscow for book tour in December. Like I was off the plane, I don't know how many hours, and suddenly I'm eating like Koshin Georgian food and drinking whiskey and there's a you know a bunch of Hasidim around and you know it's just like to me the whole world seems like extraordinarily Jewish and that's where this book starts in Memphis you know in that community like the young Israel community the Orthodox community or a blackout community like you can move them around the world but the practices are so similar and the politics are so similar it's like this notion of home it can be tied to a specific house but it's like Anytime you enter that world, it's just, it's just the same. That sameness, people work hard across generation and time and space to make that sameness. So yes, I thought about Shuli and Miri's home in Brooklyn in my made up neighborhood. But I like a lot of what runs through this book is this idea of like, coming home and going home and notions of a Jewish home, you know, and one of the things that I, I, I really like about the pacing of the story is that you you believe that you're reading a thriller and you start to read it like you're reading I apologize for saying this Lee Child I actually read all Lee Child books yeah awesome uh, but you know it, it moves at this pace and then suddenly we come to a dream sequence and the dream sequences are really deeply odd and, and take a lot of thought and I wanted to ask you about one particular uh, image where the dead have no elbows and yes. Miriam and I were both very <laughs> curious about this, we were this issue of of dead without elbows and if you had some insight for us without spoiling anything about the yeah thank you for the it's it's fun with the last two books to be like oh i actually have you know spoiler alerts i actually have <laughs> plots now but um uh oh so two things first of all i really thought about a lot of you know i think about dreams in literature like they can be wrong they can be lazy the whole thing is already you're a dream that's making a reality and now it's a reality inside a reality but i really thought you know i i I think about like continuity, continuity. I think about continuity. I think about the rules of, of a given world, like what is true and ethical and right and earns its space. 
and for religious Jews and for, you know, there's a part of this book that's in Jerusalem, like dreams are not just dreams. You know what I'm saying? They have real weight. And that's how I was raised. You know what I'm saying? This is how yeah. you know there'll be seven good years and seven years of famine. Like this is, you know, sheaves of wheat. Like those dreams, those visions, they're for real. You know what I'm saying? That's information. Those are portents. And I thought for someone like Shuley, like, you know, that, and and again, I, you know, for someone like me, Nathan, talking to you, like, I've never shaken that. Like, the weight that I was, dreams were introduced into my life, like, I feel like they still feel like they have some weight to them that I have to remind myself, you know? So I really thought in this book, like, that is another, that is another realm. That's mm. the point. There's the world of the book and then the dream world, and it is a real realm for exploration, and that's allowed them to play their you know traditional jerusalem like their holy land role but as for the uh scary elbowless image i just thought you know like i was raised with a world of stories i you know uh i was you know raised with all these you know guiding metaphors that are just part of life and then sort of around when you hit puberty i think it like the volume gets turned up in a way and would get these you know, especially it's a you know a Jewish idea. I call it like newfangled heaven and hell. I feel like I was like, oh, we adopted that from like the Romans or the Greeks or something. That's brand new stuff. But the idea is olam haba. When you die, you go to the next world. You know what I'm saying? There was Sheol. There was limbo place. Yeah. You know, and and I and I got a lot of stories growing up about the next world, like heaven and hell being the same space. Yes. And and one of them was this elbowless image, which is your you know which is drawn off of for the book which is you're at a feast it's like a you know like just an infinite gorgeous feast in the world to come and you're learning and torah you go, yeah yeah that's another one those line up like yeah you know, but on the on the feast one there's no you have no elbows and if you're a greedy horrible selfish person you're just trying to eat for all eternity and you're in hell because you can't bend your elbows to get it to your mouth you know but if you're a lovely person you look at the friend those you know dead stranger across from you and you can just reach across and feed them and you know they likewise can feed you back and it turns you know this feast turns into heaven because you're just you know being generous with each other and feeding each other yes and the torah one you mentioned is like i mean what an image to give to like a 15 year old who's like (laughs) and doesn't want to sit in his seat for like 15 hours a day but yeah that's that you're learning torah like that's your future you're just learning torah there's study that is eternity is just study. And if you're good and you love to learn Torah, then you're in heaven. And if you just can't stand sitting in that seat, then learning Torah is for you hell. Like, you know, I have so many of them. I talked to this rabbi in, in Montreal recently while I was on a, doing a different event up there. And he told me in his school, back to what I was talking to you, that idea of home and things linking up or, across space, like there's, you know, Canadian rabbi, you know, in Montreal, and he gets the same story that I get. But in his story, they said the clock. I was like, they had a his. I guess his rabbi had a a better uh, fictional, uh, you know, a little better at drama. That the clock was two minutes to the end of like class. So <laughs> I, I like the added clock for added. <laughs> that torture. sounds it's, worse. It's just stuck wow. at two minutes. I was like, oh, that's even meaner. And oh, more that's hard. horrible. That's it horrible. just never moves the last two minutes. So for you. That's wonderful. Yeah. If you're if you're in a ninety minute deep deep tissue massage and you're stuck two minutes, that's heaven. And then 
So, right. So uh, for the masseuse. Well, those those elbows, exactly. that makes more sense now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. So, so Kaddish is often kind of incorrectly referred to as the Jewish prayer for the dead. I don't have to tell you that, but it's really a prayer of praise to God and of creation and sanctification of God's name, although it does talk about the resurrection of the dead when Moshiach, the Messiah, gets here. Um, Elma al-Rachamim is more correctly termed a prayer for dead souls. So what does it say to you that Kaddish isn't really about death, but about God and sort of this perfect, future, peaceful, utopian uh, heaven, in a way? Oh, uh, that's an awesome and uh, very, you know, accurate sounding to me. That was wonderful. I would take you both on the road, both oh, for explaining this available. and explaining these elements. No, this is... I will I will be less eloquent and exact in that. Yeah, for me, it was really more thinking of it as, as the tool that it is. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like that it's about uh, like an act of advocacy. You know, as you're saying with El Malay Rachamim or, or Kel Malay Rachamim, my friend would be like, what are you saying? Anyway, but um, but uh, but yeah, like just just this idea that that for someone like Larry that that what you are doing, you know, it's like, it's, yeah, what, if you're asking me what I was thinking about, I was thinking about this idea that you have an advocate on this earth, mm-hmm. you know, that is like every time that gets said, it's somebody saying like, this was a good person who someone on this earth cares about and have mercy. Yeah. I think about the mercy, the merciful request behind saying this prayer to have mercy on someone's soul, you know, very literally. Mm-hmm. And one thing I like about it, I think I mentioned the 11 months, I like this idea that the the notion is that the maximum punishment that the most evil person would get in the right. world to it's come before year. their soul is a year. <laughs> like that's the worst sentence is a year. But we say it for 11 months because that notion is we would never, God forbid, say that anyone was so bad that they'd need the whole year. Like already <laughs> it's such a like, lovely right. idea. Chas v'shalem, they would need a whole year. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. a monster. <laughs> I, so by the time we uh, actually release this podcast, I believe it will be the week that the book is coming out. And I'm curious what you've, even though it's early, what you've heard so far, what the reaction has been to the book, besides from us, because we, we obviously just gave ours and it was very positive. But I'm wondering <laughs> what you've heard uh, as you traveled around. Oh, uh, I saw, you know, they sent me, I, I don't, I try not to see, but sometimes they send anywhere. But uh, yeah, I saw a nice, review in the times of london that was lovely like it's just someone who got it that was nice but yeah i haven't really seen any reviews yet and and it's people who can get to me and uh what can i tell you from the you know it's people who have my email or my phone number or you know are gonna take the time to yeah write a letter in event yes it's been you know I'm, I'm all evil eye and bully eye and horror right. and, you know, biting my nails <laughs> off. It's it's terrifyingly vulnerable. Uh, I Yes, I, I have, you know, nice people have said nice things, but you'd really, you'd really have to go out of your way to find me before book lands and be cruel directly. So, yeah. I, 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 you know, maybe those letters are written and they're waiting to send them next week. Well, if you have a fun, a fun Purim, then maybe this week will go by very quickly. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, most importantly, we loved it, and that's what really matters. That means a lot. Yeah. And it does. <laughs> so, Nathan, um, we just want to say thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today about the book. It's really wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This was a pleasure on my end. Have a great day. You too. 
Listeners, to learn more about Kaddish.com, check out the show notes for this episode. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also follow at Jewish Boston on social media for all of our great content. Thanks, as always, to our editor and mascot, Jesse, and to Ryan for our music. Okay. Okay. Um, oh, there's that problem. Speaking of Jesse, in the middle of you doing that, what? I shuffled a piece of fucking paper. But God Jesse, you can get that out of there, right? That's your job. All right, let's do the intro. Do your job, Jesse. Let's do the intro. Yep, let's go.